the giant. Thinkers. Giant Thinkers Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to the show. I'm Ram Castillo, and in this podcast, I'm bringing to you top experts from various industries worldwide to learn from their success and to help us become better designers, creatives, and giant thinkers. A massive welcome to all you wonderful listeners. Thank you for tuning in to episode number 22 here on the Giant Thinkers podcast. I'm Ram Castillo and today's guest is unlike any other. His CV includes a broad range of accomplishments, including working in naval intelligence during the Vietnam War, working as a journalist for the Associated Press and contributing as a business writer for Time magazine. His most recent and significant contribution to the world of design has been his 20-year tenure as the executive director of AIGA, where he was committed to advancing creative thinking from 1995 through to 2015. For those outside of the USA, AIGA stands for the American Institute of Graphic Arts and is the country's professional organization for design. Now, the thing that astounds me every time I have the pleasure of speaking with our guest is the profoundly unique way that he observes the world we live in. I guarantee that you will view design and your ability to impact the world in a whole new dimension. It's an exciting and deep episode, so I won't give too much away here. Before we get stuck in, I'd like to mention that this episode is sponsored by our friends at Solver, S-O-U-L-V-E-R. It's an app that basically functions as a notepad calculator in one. Solver lets you do quick calculations and figure stuff out. Just type in your problem and Solver shows you the answer. It's smarter and clearer than a calculator and quicker to use than a spreadsheet. Available for Mac, iPad, and iPhone. They've even been generous enough to give Giant Thinkers listeners 20% off. The discount is already applied if you head to giantthinkers.com slash Solver. That's S-O-U-L-V-E-R. The clickable link is on this podcast post. A range of people are using it all over the world from designers, students, teachers, engineers, business people, and even those suffering with dyslexia. Grab it at giantthinkers.com slash solver. Alrighty, let's get cracking. I present to you the complex and poetic mind of the incredible Mr. Rick Griffey. Rick Graffay, welcome to the Giant Thinkers podcast. It really is an honor to have you on the show. Well, thank you, Ram, and it's, it's a delight to be on it. Thank you very much. And you know what? Uh, for all the audience, a bit of background. Uh, Rick and I actually met in 2013 when he invited me to the AIGA office at the time in New York where Giant Thinkers was just starting to take off. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, it's really interesting how far things have come. Um, so the first question I have for you is a little icebreaker. Uh, yours is if they made a movie about your life, which actor would you like to see play your character? Well, I, I think it would have to be Alec Guinness because here's a character who started off in kind hearts and coronets in which he played eight different roles. Then he was Colonel Nicholson in bridge on the river Kwai. He was, um, smart George Smiley as a spy, and then Obi-Wan Kenobi, which was probably the role I had to play toward the end of my AIGA tenure. <laughs> so I think I'd have to go with Alec. 
Nice. Love it. Uh, okay. So where would you say your expertise lies? Well, I, I think it, it lies in uh, the roles that I've been playing at AIGA, which is really a bridge between design and all the other worlds that it influences. Uh, you know, I have a passion for design, but I think that I have this pragmatic capability to communicate to other audiences about the power of design and also to have a clear sense of where design is going and what challenges it must face so that I can help the profession move along. So I think that there's a role of strategy, vision, it's synthesis, um, it's admiration from many different perspectives, um, the ability to listen. I think those are probably the attributes. I love that. And uh, I'm sure we'll tap into that more in uh, the episode here. Um, but first, uh, I'd love to hear about your childhood and how you grew up. I'm not sure that's the most interesting thing, <laughs> but, I, but I did grow up. Uh, I, I grew up largely in Munich, Germany, uh, where I, I lived during my formative years while my father was with Radio Free Europe and then um, came back to the States uh, and went to um, went to Dartmouth College uh, and studied economics and graphic design, uh, and then proceeded in a career. If you mean where did I really work up and what were the influences, I think certainly this growing up in Europe and experiencing many different perspectives and a variety of cultures. Munich was really a crossroads at that time during the Cold War for people coming out of Eastern Europe. And they passed through our home because of the connection with Radio for Europe. So beginning to gain many perspectives uh, was really important. And uh, I think probably the, the people that my that my parents knew tended to be in the business of trying to enhance understanding. And that too became a pretty important part of my growing up. Yeah. Uh, what did your parents do, by the way? My, my father was with Radio Free Europe. He was a, an executive and my, uh, my, my mother was an English teacher. Okay. Right. And, and uh, you were in uh, Germany from about what age do you, would you, would you say? I was there from the time I was 10 until I was 18. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And so uh, how did sort of day-to-day -day look like to you outside of school? Oh, well, it was, it was always, um, it was always a discovery. And I think the most important discovery was I can still remember when uh, I suddenly realized I had this epiphany about design. And it was when I first encountered a Dieter Rahm's uh, radio that he had designed for Brown. And, um, I remember causing a fit because my parents gave me a different radio. And then I remember discovering uh, these German books. And this was probably at the age of 12 or 13 that um, were printed in, in fonts that uh, Hermann Zopf had designed. And uh, I could tell the difference at that age. And I thought, I thought that was absolutely, you know, I thought it was intriguing about typefaces. And so, you know, th there were a couple of things. I was a typical kid, just as you were, I mean, sports and, and that sort of thing. But also uh, design became a passion early on, not necessarily as someone who spent time in art class, but uh, someone who could see it. Yeah. Yeah. And and the only reason why I bring that up is, is exactly to that point, you know, um, 
nowadays it's so much different that, uh, for example, I visited a friend who had a newborn and two years on now she's growing up, but she is so fast on the iPad. It's incredible. Oh, right. So, right. I mean, right. oh, absolutely. Yeah, I was the, I was still in the. Uh, I made made it uh, during the era where you would still play hopscotch with a rock outside. <laughs> right. So, yeah, there you go. Um, so, look, I'd love to give the audience a bit of context about you, uh, even a bit further. Rolling off that, uh, just a snapshot on your journey prior to being the executive director of AIGA coming in in 1995. Uh, what was life like for you in the 80s and 90s? Well, I actually date back farther than that. But the um, so I think people like plants need to be repotted regularly or you get root bound. And so I've taken that as a cue to change my profession uh, frequently. Mm. I mentioned I graduated from Dartmouth College in uh, economics, but with a passion for, for graphic design. And I had studied calligraphy at the Royal College of Art in, uh, in Bristol as well uh, during my, my four years as an undergraduate. Uh, I then, the day after I graduated, I was setting type by hand at a wonderful letterpress um, printing house in northern, in the, in the rural area of northern Vermont. Um, but then I was about to get drafted for the Vietnam War, so I joined the Navy and became um, an intelligence officer uh, in the Philippines and then, then in Vietnam. Oh, wow. Uh, and then I, um, I hitchhiked from Saigon to Cape Town, South Africa, writing about urban development patterns. And then when I got to New York, I uh, was a was a reporter for the Associated Press in the South Bronx, the South Bronx County Courthouse, and then was a writer for Time Magazine. Then uh, I became, I guess, I, I became impatient with observing the kinds of changes that were going on in society at that time as a reporter, and I wanted to be part of the action in addressing issues that were facing society. And I thought that the way to do that might well be to get the practical skills through an MBA program. So I went to Stanford Graduate School of Business and got an MBA, and then opened a consulting practice. Uh, that dealt with public policy, urban design, and the and economic impact of environmental policies. And I uh, I had that practice, and it expanded to have offices at Honolulu, San Francisco, Detroit, and Washington D.C. Uh, but then I discovered that if you are any good as a consultant, you're always going from success to success. You don't live with failures, and the only way you build character is through living with failures and trying to implement beyond your own recommendations. And so I wanted to join an organization that uh, that had values that I believed in. And so I joined public broadcasting in Washington, D.C. and led their think tank on the future of public television and public radio, uh, including technology, programming, educational use of technology, uh, and then uh, became the director of legislative strategy and a lobbyist for public television, public radio in Washington. And then when the Senate of the, of the United States spent two days discussing whether public broadcasting was undermining the morals of America, I said, this is just absurd. Uh, thinking, oh, Naively thinking that that would be the low point in the civic experience, uh, I decided I had to get out of there. And uh, that's when I was the outside candidate for the AIGA position, which I found out about by reading the New York Times and applying for an ad. 
But the, and the interesting thing is, you know, on the Washington departure, I thought that was uh, as dysfunctional and as as you know silly as governance structures could ever be. And that was twenty years ago, and it's only gotten worse since then. So I certainly didn't make this bad decision then. But coming back, coming to AIGA was certainly, uh, in many respects, a, the sense of coming home to design. It's where I started, and I built up a number of skills along the way. And I loved building institutions. I love building institutions that serve others. And this was a chance to serve a community that I really respected. Yeah. Wow. That's, um, where do I even begin with that? <laughs> that, that was, uh, that, yeah, that uh, definitely captures a lot of things that start ticking in my head right now. The first thing is, um, firstly about cult, uh, cultivating and, and b- being an observer. And I think, uh, that whole area you did that sounds like you were doing that for what over a decade just that or more even just that that period where you know buzzwords that you were using were vietnam war and hitchhiking and then traveling back to new york and then consulting and then um you know uh writing and documenting and it feels as if that you were you 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 had done enough cultivating or sufficient uh, observing, uh, to a point that something within you just triggered a need to scratch your own itch with which you executed in that way. Um, and it just, it was amazing that you, you, uh, described that, um, you had all these thought patterns that led you to feeling that taking that ad applying for it in that role was something that really called to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't think that that comes without all of the, the experiences that you've just described. Uh, you, you would not have been able to know that. And that's a lot of the things where uh, I try to sort of dissect in my own life and also for the listeners, I'm sure, you know, how do they find their calling and, and what, what speaks to them? Right. Well, I, you know, I think that probably the, one's calling doesn't really come from an epiphany that suddenly bolt, comes bolting out of the blue, but rather, at least in my case, it um, it was the result of this sort of incremental growth pattern. But in fact, you know, I think one of the interesting things about the design profession is there are so many designers who feel that if they, well, that they are meant to design, once they've gone through design a design program, once they've graduated as a designer, they immediately step into design, and they unless they can't find a job, and they um, and they try to make a career out of design. And it's a profession in which many people feel if they don't get a job in design, they failed. Well, the truth of the matter is, society would be better off if designers were distributed throughout society and the economy. I mean, certainly people who study history don't expect to be historians, and if only designers would realize that. Uh, design is an incredible preparation for many other fields. Absolutely. Yeah. And and it's funny, uh, I, I forget who I was speaking to about this, but, uh, oh, I remember now. It was Andrew Hoyne, who uh, has been running uh, his own uh, business here in Australia uh, for 25 years now. And he said that uh, it surprises him and boggles his mind that not all CEOs and leaders of companies uh, haven't either studied design themselves to some degree or 
have brought in more design thinkers right. into their board of 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 members uh, of uh, sorry the board of the company. Um, but uh, I was gonna um, just tap into the area that you said about failures and, and how how crucial that was uh, for learning. And uh, the, the next question I had for you was uh, in terms of challenges. Uh, you were met as executive director in AIJ for 20 years, uh, you would have no doubt seen it all. Um, what, what are some of the biggest hurdles you had to overcome at the time and, and how did you keep pushing forward? So there, there are two parts of that question in a sense. Uh, one is the role of, the role of uh, AIGA within the design profession. Second is the relevance of associations generally when social norms are changing. So, I mean, they're, they're, they're both the challenge of the design profession and the challenge of being an association as uh, a demographic entered the profession who believed in open source and the communities were on uh, social media and not created as association. So there, there are two sets of challenges there. Certainly um, coming into AIJ with its legacy, it had it had been really a club that was largely centered around New York, and it, or at least it, the leadership was centered around New York. And certainly the attitude within the New York community was that was the center of the universe. And the need for, at least it appeared to me that the role of an association, particularly in a young profession like design, really needed to be one that that established these institutional and professional norms, and that the idea was that an association uh, should not focus strictly on design excellence, where it became the imprimatur of a single design style, which, you know, coming out of the 60s and 70s, it probably was an international style, but rather the the pursuit of excellence should be around the professional side. It was the professional association. In other words, what does it mean to be a professional designer? And in any community where there is such diversity of style as there might be in the in the design profession in the United States, that should be celebrated as you know a diverse range of styles, and that mm. the the standard should be around professionalism. So, the, so it was really a matter of moving from being this club to being an organization that really defined a profession that gained respect uh, and that gained understanding uh, within the, the broader community. And to do that, and what you deal with in a case of an association, especially when the real strength of the organization is not in the staff and it's not even in the leadership, it's in the members themselves, mm-hmm. and they are all volunteers. How do you, how do you lead that group when uh, they might, they may be looking at immediate gratification for their engagement in AIGA. And I was looking for the long term to build an institution. So that those are some of the challenges that uh, that I faced, along with the with the existential question of whether associations were going to make it in the 21st century. Yeah. So uh, that's really great um, because it's it's like, where, where do you begin? Um, how did AIGA shift from or start to from a club to a hub um, and and what motivators did you find uh, exactly that would accommodate for that short term uh, sort of delivery of having these members fulfilled versus the overall progression of the organization? All right. So uh, you know, coming in in 1995, uh, 
it was clear that this was not being managed as a professional organization. And certainly, uh, I had prided myself on, on running organizations relatively well uh, in the past. And, I, and I, because of public broadcasting, which in the United States consists of uh, 300 public television stations and 600 radio stations, all of which are independent, there had been a learning curve there in terms of how you govern an organization where you have to really seduce people into doing what's in their own best interest yeah. and that you couldn't just tell them. So th there were certain things that I learned from experience that I brought with me to AIGA. And, and um, immediately um, it was apparent in 1995 that the profession was changing dramatically. You know, interaction design was just appearing. I mean, it was, it was probably called screen design then, you know, or mo some people might have called it motion design, but, um, or web design. And um, one had a choice between being a, a legacy organization that uh, was a very intimate club of graphic designers or defining yourself around design itself. And certainly I pursued the broader definition and I brought in um, a number of thought leaders who agreed with that perspective and were willing to work with me to move the organization so that it began to reach new elements of the design profession. And, and you know, this, this is sort of a monumental dynamic, right? So, um, and it both strengthened and weakened AIGA, but basically um, we, it, we had started as uh, a graphic design organization, a graphic arts organization, then a graphic design organization, um, and the, the term graphic design coming from an AIG member, Wiggins, as a matter of fact. And then um, in the 50s and 60s, uh, it became communication design, and then 70s and 80s, it became corporate identity. And then in the 90s, it became, it started to become interaction design. Uh, and toward the end of that, it became experience design, and, and we moved on, you know, motion and to um, video and to and to service design and organizational design, policy design. But at that point in 1995, it was clear that we needed to make that shift from graphic design to communication design and beyond. Mm. And so that was one major sort of initiative. And the way to do it is always bring in coalition partners, uh, people that you discover who are advocates, and you make sure that your uh, audience is hearing from their peers. Now, one of the challenges to that, of course, is that if you represent a broad spectrum of designers, many people who join an organization are joining an organization to talk to people like themselves, no matter how far to the left or to the right there are other professions. And so you had to also deepen it. And in the original AIGA, in the, you know, in the AIGA from the 19. 80s, uh, the idea that like-minded people were organized by geography mm. seemed to make sense. But once there was social media or or the, or the internet uh, and email, uh, people started communicating with like-minded designers anywhere in the country rather than just in their own community. And so that sort of changed the element of what an association can be too. So on the one hand, we were working on expanding the profession. And no matter when you ask members, you know, I, I thought, here's a profession where if I ask them what else they belong to, and, and, and this has been true throughout the 20 years, 
they are not joiners. They belong to very few organizations. The, the, the most, um, the greatest duplicate membership among our membership were people who belonged to either the Sierra Club or, or Greenpeace. And after that, and that was, and both of those were like 12% or something like that. So in fact, you know, the design profession are non-joiners. And if they're non-joiners, what is it that makes them join AIGA? And no matter when I asked them over 20 years why it was, there were always four reasons. One was um, to get a sense of community. The second was to get information. The third was to have an organization that would increase the understanding of uh, what people do and then as designers. And then the fourth was to gain respect for what they do. Well, no sooner do we develop a, a broad range of disciplines within the umbrella of AIGA than social media come along and challenge those first two issues. Social media suggests um, that people can create communities without an association. And secondly, they, um, they, the internet provides access, deep access to information. So what is it that, uh, what is it that can sustain an association among a community of non-joiners? And I think the, the answer that we tried to encourage was a thoughtful conversation that in effect, you have to so hone your sense of curiosity in order to know something tomorrow that didn't even exist today. And you don't get that from either social media or from the internet if you don't know what questions to ask. Then you have to engage in thoughtful conversation and you have to deal with an organization that is a thought leader pursuing the things that are important to you. Mm, I really love that. Um, the thing that I also... Um always think about are these enablers of course the biggest one being the internet which creates the platform for many social media uh channels and that as the enabler allows us capabilities that are both uh opportunities but as well might be troublesome right uh, around 95 was when the well, the macintosh had been out for about a decade at, in, uh, at that time that's right and um you know, there begs the question, you know, how do you standardize or um, keep um, a, a universal sort of uh, level of, of responsibility and of quality in uh, design? Um, and I think that's a really nice approach when you said that it was through thoughtful conversation. And really, you know, what are the conversations that are happening amongst people? Not not just what the organization says is, right. is relevant. Um, uh, that's very cool. And the other thing I just wanted to dive into is uh, you were mentioning advocates and partners that would become advocates to steer that uh, same mentality and philosophy, uh, as you mentioned there. Um, were, you, were the board members of AIGA uh, advocates as well from the get-go with you coming in? Uh, some were and some weren't. I mean, I think we had really strong advocates for both uh, retaining the old model and some for um, pursuing a new model. So uh, it wasn't it wasn't by any sense a, a clear consensus, mm. but there certainly were advocates for different points of view. Great. That's very cool. So um, I'd now like to shift the needle and move into three key areas uh, that uh, I'm really excited to ask you about and um, that are, are on the minds of thousands tuning in as well. Um, they are really simple, uh, three important L words, I'm calling them. The first 
one is listening. Um, listening to people and their needs as designers, as communicators, and also as collaborators. What advice can you share to help all of us become better listeners? Well, I think the charge itself is really important to let people know that they need to listen. So, you know, if you think of what are the what are the real attributes that a designer or a creative mind brings to problem solving? And, and you know, certainly AIGA and I were very early and strong advocates for design thinking and, and encouraging both designers to use their creative minds and broader perspectives but also to gain demand for that use among you know, the independent sector, the private sector, the public sector. And you know, when we look at that, what are, what are the attributes of something? I mean, there are three things in my mind. There's empathy, there's creativity, and there's execution. And the empathy is around not only observing, but also listening. It's very important for designers to move beyond uh, something that they often learn uh, as designers in school, which is uh, to develop and then trust their intuition. You know, the, the creative sense frequently, particularly if it comes out of an art program, is that you're drawing on your own inner strength or inner inspiration, and you're communicating it uh, in a way that's very personal. And so, you know, the best designers do listen carefully and they observe carefully. But many of them, particularly those who are very good at the techniques of design, are ones who depend upon their own intuition. And you even see it in um, in board meetings or in situations where designers are asked to be part of a um, to be part of a management process. Frequently, they will come and answer a question, a policy question that's put on the table on what they think about the question at hand. And it should never be about what they think. It's about, it should be about how does this fit into the strategy and the context in which we're considering it for the group that we're considering it. Mm, Absolutely. Watching that happen around a board table where designers are at the board table and are thinking that the, their participation is based on their own experience rather than bringing judgment to bear on and applying it to the strategy and the objectives on the table and the context on the table um, reveals that listening may be taken much too literally, Mm. that people aren't really listening in the broader sense of really understanding context as well as what's spoken or what's observed. So, I mean, I think, I think what's really important is to realize, you know, it, even if you're a good listener, um, your filtering mechanism, your your ability to synthesize, has got to be placed outside of your own experience. Yeah, and your own interests as well. That's right, and your own interests. Yeah. Although you know the, the 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 experiences that I was sharing with you are when the the interest is is often um, it's not a self interest. It's just based on personal experience and not mm. not an intellectual approach to problems. Yeah, totally agree. Um, so the second L word is on leadership, uh, a big one there, but, uh, h- how does one lead a, a 30,000 person organization? <laughs> well, well, so, um, I think the best way to lead is, is to 
describe a clear vision of where you're going Hmm. and to set certain principles that are fair, equitable, and consistent. Always be fair, equitable, and consistent because you want every member in this organization to feel confident that nobody else is getting a better deal than they're getting so that there's an element of trust that's built because ultimately trust is the coin of the realm in that kind of leadership. And, um, and then you just have to be persuasive in uh, once you've gotten them to understand the vision, you've got to, you, you have to be persuasive in suggesting that every step of the way is a step in that direction. And the only way uh, that, they can sort of reject the leadership in terms of the direction you want to pursue is by giving up on the dream. So, um, because it it is all seduction and let them know that you're looking out for their interests and always be available and and transparent with them. But I think the more interesting leadership issue is a different one. So if, if someone asks me, what are the challenges facing the design profession? You know, it has nothing to do with the techniques of design in my mind. It has to do with three things. Relevance, leadership, and opportunity. And the relevance, in a sense, goes back to our description or our discussion of of listening. So the relevance is designers want to be seen as relevant uh, in a a more important role than than frequently they're used. Mm -hmm. So, you know, inevitably there's the discussion, oh, why am I not in the boardroom when people are first coming up with a design brief or uh, or the intent or strategy uh, of their positioning. And the truth of the matter is, uh, designers from the time they're teenagers, um, are fetishists, you know, and they, and very few people enter design and design school because they say, I want to influence the, uh, the design of an organ of organizations and their behavior. They do it because they want to make objects and they're fetishists and they, and they refine that capability in school. And then, uh, in their twenties, they practice it and they get better at it. And then late in their twenties, they suddenly say, I want to do more. But the truth of the matter is their path hasn't led them to experiences that broaden their perspective enough to deal with complex problems. And so relevance has two aspects to it. The relevance has to do not only with, um, being relevant uh, in terms of being able to answer these broader questions, but also in letting society know that you have a role to play in relevance, in being relevant in this, in solving complex problems, that you have a much higher role in terms of um, strategy and, and society and politics and business and marketing. But the, the second thing I mentioned was leadership. And when I see leadership, uh, because of the things that I mentioned just a moment ago, most designers are not trained in leadership. Hmm. Um, and in essence, they they have perfected their capabilities in a narrow realm of uh, of design. And uh, and they because they have prided themselves on being different from everyone else, since they were a teenager, they occupy the creative fringe. And then they wonder why people aren't turning them to to them. But that's because they've self-marginalized. And so the leadership issue is to get the design profession to move from the creative fringe of society dead center in the center of society so that accountants and lawyers and community leaders and business people are turning to them as equals and asking them to solve a problem. So leadership has to do with learning as well as discovering leadership and beginning to do things that don't reinforce their difference, 
but actually bring them into the same realm at a relatively high plateau as others in society. And that's a real challenge, getting designers to be leaders. And in this country, certainly, I know of only one designer, I've been asking this question for years, only one designer who is in an elected office anywhere in America. Interesting. And that it, because they don't move into that realm, they're much more likely to distance themselves from it and then wonder why they don't have influence. So leadership is a really critical issue here. And it's not just leadership. You know, I think that's a more interesting question than the leadership of an association. How do we bring how do we bring designers into leadership from cadre? And then the third is opportunity. And I think if you if you deal with a relevance issue and you deal with a leadership issue, it's going to create opportunity that is going to assure the designers are both successful and influential. So I'm just going to take a, take that window right now and say, um, how then would one put themselves forward in a completely different area in their minds or, you know, in at least within the realm of traditional uh, design uh, sub subcultures uh, or subsections um, and as your you've just mentioned your your friend or your colleague that ha, or you know someone that you've known uh, has moved into the space um, that most people would never most designers rather would never move into how then can we sort of be more exposed to those types of opportunities um, besides having the willingness to do so. Right. So it goes back to this issue of thoughtful conversation to some extent. The reason thoughtful conversation is so important is that the most important attribute to have to deal with the dynamics of change in society, culture, politics, the economy is curiosity because knowledge is growing so rapidly. And one of the disadvantages that designers have, because many of them have gone to design school, is what I call the missing semester. The missing semester is the semester, the hypothetical semester, when the humanities, social sciences, hard sciences, math, politics were taught that designers never had. Mm. And they have to recognize that the problems that they need to solve and their role in society will be based on their ability to participate in the conversations that occur in those other realms. So listening is not simply about passively listening or even actively listening without discovering because of a well-developed sense of curiosity that there are things you don't know about other people's perspectives and you need to understand them. Um, you know, Mandela in prison learned Afrikaans because he felt that he needed to be able to speak their language in order to fight them effectively in a civic manner. You know, that's the same sort of concept, right? Mm, absolutely. That we have designers who want to succeed need to, need to learn these other perspectives and learn it in such a way as to develop effectively as a resource in those areas and not on the job training where you get a project and you have to learn it quickly. Um, because for, at least from my experience, you're going to be most effective if not when you go into a meeting and articulate how you see a problem. But if you go into a meeting and you're able to say, I see how you see this. Mm. And now let's look at it this way. But it's really important to be able to get into the 
skin of those people whose problems you're trying to solve. So that can happen from listening. It can happen from ethnographic research and empathy, but it also can, it can happen and has to happen from learning. And one of the disadvantages, I think, is that in design, other than keeping up with technology, there's no, there's very little continuing education necessary. And I think designers have to understand that you, the continuing education is not about design at all. It's about that missing semester. Absolutely. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. Um, primarily because I can't imagine any problem solving uh, becoming an efficient solution um, without experiencing exactly what you are trying to uh, sort of cater for. And, and I say that in a sense of really service design, experiential design, interaction design. Um, how can you do any of those things? And in, in all honesty, all of those elements have uh, a part to play in something as dated back as the label corporate identities right. um, because it's how people are going to receive that message. Um, so I'm super glad you said that as well when you um, mentioned the missing semester uh, so many times have I thought, why on earth have we not tapped into more of the design thinking, exactly what you said, the sociologies, the histories, the, um, the psychologies, those modules, uh, you know, and it's only until looking back at it now where I've gone, oh, wow, it's because of my own intentional traveling of you know, over 30 cities now, uh, sorry, 30 countries in over a hundred cities that I've kind of been able to use all of that to my advantage on, on, in my own experiences of, of bringing something to the table. And as you said, responding in a way that speaks to, uh, clients or internally when you're collaborating and saying, I understand how you see the world. Right. Um, that's very cool. Now, the third area I'd like to talk about is the uh, the third L word is legacy. Uh, in your opinion, how do we build our legacy as designers and creative people who are looking to leave the world better than when we arrived in it? So I think that, you know, we are in an era where macro solutions and big government are over uh and, you know the they are ineffective in solving problems that are affecting society particularly other societies and other cultures and so you know there, there's no question that the the idea of human-centered design for social change is um is not a passing fad. I mean, it, it really is based on the fact that if you can come up with solutions that are based on human behavior and can make them appealing individually to people, they become self-sustaining. So, you know, certainly we have the capacity to cause change. Now, um, I think that in terms of the legacy, I think it, it actually involves those same issues I was mentioning a moment ago, the relevance and the leadership issue. Uh, in at AIGA, we began an initiative called Design for Good, which was intended to demonstrate how design can make a difference mm. in the world. And, and if you ask most designers why they design, most of them will eventually come to the answer to enhance the human experience. 
They may mean it in aesthetic terms, but they probably mean it in social terms as well. So this is certainly a driving motivator. But Design for Good, our Design for Good initiative, along with our Design for Democracy initiative, which was aiming at increasing the civic experience, were both intended to not only make a difference in the human experience, but also to move the designer from the creative fringe to the center of the community or society as the community or society tries to solve a problem that's important to them. It's not about designers saying, hey, what we do is important. It's about proving it by actually solving problems important to other people. Mm. And, And I think that's the way you do two things. You make a difference in the world, but also in the course of that, you build a level of respect and understanding for the role the designer plays. And that doesn't mean the designer has to solve the problem. I think in my mind, it does mean that the designer has to be in the room, but also probably has to facilitate the discussion. And in doing that, they can draw on experts and and community leaders and and others um, to actually solve many parts of the problems and to share the ownership. But the designer's role is seen as being absolutely critical. Yeah. I love that. Um, I'm going to throw a question in there from one of our listeners here. Um, How do you see designers standing out in a saturated and competitive market? I'm sure you've been asked this a couple of times in the past. Do you mean you mean how does an individual designer stand out in within the community of designers? Is that what you mean, or do you mean in in the community of of people who are not practicing design? Uh, I believe the first, uh, as you've said. So yeah, right. So. you know the that's tough you i think the the way you stand out uh is that you demonstrate a greater sensitivity to the problems that are given to you uh so you know the result of that is you have clients who speak highly of what you did and secondly you do great design <laughs> yeah you know i mean uh, there, there's no magic bullet here now i think what they're saying probably is hey it's a saturated market and i can't get any bandwidth here for my work mm. and nobody is seeing it well you know th- again there's no easy answer there if you are really good and you know if you do find ways to work with um those in the in the public sector the nonprofits on causes that might give you visibility. That's certainly one way to do it if you can't do it through getting a great design job to begin with. Mm, Yeah, that's a great answer. Uh, So a couple more questions now for you, Rick, before we wrap up. Um, A question I ask most of my guests is if you could travel back in time for 30 seconds and speak to uh, junior Rick, perhaps the youngster finishing high school, what would you tell him? So I I guess I would tell them some of the things we've already discussed, certainly uh, about the issue of curiosity and thoughtful conversation, because I think that's the only way that you begin to develop curiosity. Uh, It might be it might be useful. I I, I get sent a letter to my son and my daughter when they just went to college about what I hoped they would learn uh, when they went there. And and it, it tended to be this was some time ago, but it tended to be about issues that I still think are important. It was understand different cultures. Mm. Uh, We will never again be in a position where other cultures aren't as important as ours. Um, Understand human nature. So uh, discover why people do things and understand and respect why they do. Learn to communicate. It's all about narrative. I mean, ultimately, your ability to succeed 
and your ability to learn are both based on storytelling uh, and writing. And so discover narrative. Yeah, love it. Um, and um, then, uh, you know, I'm, I go beyond those. I mean, I go through things that I think are probably, you know, they're not the missing semester, but they certainly uh, bear. And I mean, you know, Greek mythology is great because it's great stories. Modern European history is incredible in teaching you parallax, the way things look from different perspectives in a small amount of space. Asian history is important because uh, Asia will be increasingly important in terms of the the dynamics of the world. Mm, Totally agree. Political philosophy, because those are big ideas. those are the sorts of things super powerful examples rick thank you thank you for sharing that um definitely connecting the dots with everything that you've said uh in this episode um so another question i have for you real quick is who has been an impactful giant thinker in your life uh that person who has inspired you to think bigger and dig deeper in helping you reach your full potential so i don't think there's a single giant thinker because i'm not sure I'm not sure I buy that concept any more than the idea that big government is the answer at the moment. Mm. It's a little, it's listening carefully and discovering from individuals throughout my life. So, I mean, I can claim that when I was at college and earning money as a house painter, I remember this, un, you know, this, this house painter who had not gone to college and you know, had been painting all his life. I asked him, why do you have to paint the back of a radiator? Nobody sees it. And he says, because it's there. Hmm. And, you know, I thought that was rationally, that was not logical. But on the other hand, he was right. You know, and uh, that's completing the job. Or uh, there was a wonderful lesson I learned from Christo, the artist, who, um, when he had done the... Uh, the fence in Marin County, California, a 23-mile fence that was up for three weeks. And I, I remember asking him how he tolerated the process of getting it through the planning and zoning regulations. And he said, Rick, you don't understand. That is the art. Anyone can hang a curtain. <laughs> and and that lesson has, st- has stayed with me for 30 years that it's the difficulty. It's the it's the it's the trivial difficulties that become the art. Mm. How do you get through that without letting them beat you? The you know ultimately what you want to accomplish, you've got the passion to do that. You can do that, but it's the other part that you have to figure out how to do rather than let it beat you. So that you know there are these little lessons that I learned that I think are much more influential than any single giant thinker. Yeah, very cool. Um, so Rick, uh, what's next for you? and everything you're involved in for this year and beyond? So I left uh, AIJ at the end of December uh, a month ago, and after after 20 years, and that was part of the entire strategy that I had to create an organization for the next generation. And the last step would be I would step aside so the next generation could take it over. Uh, So I've laid out six months during which uh, my principal objective is to read all of the books piled next to my bed. And and the major decision is whether to start at the top of the pile or the bottom. <laughs> on, the other hand, on the other hand, I'm also teaching human-centered design for social change at Wesleyan University this semester. And then I'm going to, after six months, I'm going to decide what my next career will be. Great. That's That sounds like a great plan to me. And of course, one of your other tough decisions is probably 
uh, what what beverage you're going to intertwine with, what tea flavors. Right, that that's right. That's exactly <laughs> so, Rick, um, how can listeners get in touch with you online? Um, my email address is grefe, G-R-E-F-E, at me.com. Cool. Cool. Um, of course, uh, only if, if you have time to read them uh, in between the books. Um, and uh, Rick, uh, that's about it now. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and knowledge with us on the Giant Thinkers podcast. I truly hope this episode will be listened to for years to come as part of the documentation of your own inspiring legacy. And of course, I wish you continued success on your next chapter. Thank you, Ram. It's been a pleasure. What a special interview. Thank you so much for tuning into this one. Personally, I found Rick's insights both wise and thought-provoking and made me reflect on how else I can create positive social change for all of you through the Giant Thinkers community and beyond. Speaking of, make sure that you're subscribed to my mailing list at giantthinkers.com where you'll receive weekly updates on new podcast episodes or blog posts and even any upcoming events. Plus, you'll be kept in the loop of my next book, How to Get a Mentor as a Designer Guaranteed, due to launch later this year. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave a quick review on iTunes by heading to giantthinkers.com slash podcast review. It'll take you right there. I really do appreciate your feedback. Now, our next guest is an interaction designer and the current design director of one of the world's most influential, forward-thinking, and arguably one of the most well-known sporting brands of all time. I'm excited to let that one out of the bag. Lastly, a reminder to check out Solver, the app that functions as a notepad calculator. Just type in your problem and Solver shows you the answer. It's smarter and clearer than a calculator and quicker to use than a spreadsheet available for Mac, iPad, and iPhone. They've even been generous enough to give listeners 20% off. The discount is already applied if you head to giantthinkers.com slash solver. That's S-O-U-L-V-E-R. The clickable link is on this podcast post. I can't wait for you all to tune in next time and I'll leave you with a reminder from Rick himself. The way to stand out is to demonstrate a greater sensitivity to the problems that are given to you. 